Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan. So we're back after another little hiatus. It's March the 29th. What are we talking about today? Yeah, who knows? This this month of March feels like it, it flew by, and there's, there's certainly a, a lot to discuss. Um, before we get into that, I think we ought to at least mention, do you watch the Oscars or you read about the Oscars? Look, look at us talking about the Oscars. <laughs> I I uh, I sure did re- read about it, or um, was was uh, Jenny was on Instagram the next morning and was just like, "Did you see this?" And I was like, "No, I have, I had no idea what happened." It's it's crazy. So yeah, interesting Oscars for sure. Not- so this <laughs> this is where like uh, unfortunately in this day and age, like you have to be like skeptical about everything because look at us actually like talking about the Oscars like two days after they happened, um, which in no situation would we have ever done unless something like wild like this happened. I do think it was real for, for the record, but like you do have to be like a little bit skeptical with everything these days. Um, but I was on a fantasy baseball draft on zoom with a bunch of the guys, a bunch of our friends. And one of them, his, uh, his wife was watching in the background. He did, he was like, Oh my goodness, was that real? And all of us, me were like, what? And he was like, Will Smith just hit Chris Rock at the Oscars. And immediately, all of us, like, grabbed the clickers and changed from, like, whatever we're watching to the Oscars. Uh, but what an unbelievable scene. Um, like, it was, it's almost like a Mad Lib scene. Like, Chris Rock makes alopecia joke at Jada Pinkett. Will Smith slaps Chris Rock at the Oscars, wins Best Actor. <laughs> like, like, uh, like, it's... It, I don't know. You can't make this stuff up. Hollywood's crazy. Will Smith is a lunatic. The Smiths in general are absolutely they're 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 on their own little planet over there. I'm I'm surprised that I in all of like the takes and the coverage, people aren't more like, is Will Smith like okay? Like that's not a normal reaction to He's a, not okay. He's clearly like, not okay. Clearly not okay. But it doesn't that doesn't they seem to be more like, well, what is the academy gonna do to punish him? And like how are we gonna it's like Somebody check on Will Smith. Like, I mean, I feel bad for Chris Rock. He took one to the face like an absolute champ and just yeah. kept on going. But, you know, he'll be fine. Will Smith, on the other hand, I'm not so sure. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good point. I, I think he was totally in the wrong there. And also people should be concerned about like his his mental health. He doesn't he doesn't seem to be in a good place. And um, that would make sense for a lot of reasons. Whatever. We're not here to talk about Will Smith, but I felt like it was just like, it, we. I guess in, no one needs any more opinions on this. You can go to Twitter and get every opinion under the sun, but felt like the thing that's in the news these days, so we should at least talk about it. But there's, there's been tons of things in the news, obviously, over the course of this month. You know, the war, you know, to make a hard transition, the war in um, Ukraine continues to rage. It's into its, its fifth week, and while there are maybe glimmers of um, hope um, at the negotiating table, uh, I'm not not banking on on the success of the negotiating table, and that's just going to, you know, unfortunately, as this war drags on, it's increasing the suffering for Ukrainians. Um, 
And so we're definitely keeping uh, them in our minds. You know, President Biden just came back from his trip to Europe, which was um, momentous, I guess. And I mean, momentous in the sense that there were a lot of moments that are interesting, to to say the least. Maybe we'll talk a little bit um, about those, you know, at some point, either later in this episode or on a different episode. Uh, But really, two things that we want to diet, you know, we're going to discuss in, in this episode. Um, one does have to do or stems from the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. And it has to do with the intersection of sports and money and politics and how we're seeing that play out specifically in relation to what's happening with you know, Russia and Ukraine, but also just like a general trend that I have noticed in the world of sports. Um, so I'll, I'll flesh that out a little bit more when we get into it. And then um, you know, the other big ticket event, which would be the headline story, you know, everywhere, if not for what's happening in the Ukraine, but um, Ketanji Brown Jackson's uh, confirmation hearings were this past week. And so we, we've talked about her just very briefly, but we'll, we'll talk about her a little bit more and um, our thoughts on the confirmation hearings after that. Um, but before we get into all of that, got to remind everybody that the podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. They've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. Uh, Ricky, I was actually talking to their founder this weekend and just checking in about progress you know, on both ways. And he was, was asking how business was. And he said they just hired their 10th employee. They're heading into their, their fourth year and they're up to 10 employees and um, you know, hoping to continue to grow and expand and it makes sense. Like the, the, their products are in high demand. Um, they're doing really well. So again, can't, can't encourage people more. If, if you are moving, if you are looking to renovate, if you um, are just looking to upgrade some piece of furniture, give those guys a shout as Canon with two ends. You can check them out on uh, Instagram or visit them online at canonhillwood.com. Yeah. Love a small business success story. And yeah, if you do follow them on Instagram, their uh their pieces look incredible yeah it's cool you know small business hopefully helping um another small business i don't know if we can call ourselves a business yet we do the opposite of make money (laughs) sad (laughs) uh all right so let, let, let me try to explain my intersection of sports money and politics and why i wanted to talk about it now my favorite football soccer team is Chelsea. Um, Chelsea is a London-based club that competes in the English Premier League, which is the wealthiest league in the world. Um, Chelsea has become, over the last two decades, one of the most successful clubs in the world. Um, They won the Champions League last year, which is all of the best teams in Europe. They have been a perennial contender for the English Premier League title and some of the the other trophies that um, are available in English football. And the reason that they have become one of the most successful clubs in the world over the last two decades is because in 2003, they were brought by Roman Roman Abramovich. Roman Abramovich is a Russian oligarch. He made his money in very controversial ways um, as the Soviet Union was transitioning um, to Russia and privatizing um, the state-owned businesses. So there was a period of time called perestroika, as close as I can get to, to saying that, right? But but essentially, uh, this term refor- refers to um, former Premier Mikhail Gorbachev's plan to modernize, reform, privatize uh, Russian 
or Soviet Union at the time businesses. So I think most people know the Soviet Union was a, a communist nation for um, you know half a century, or I guess almost close to you know three quarters of a century. Um, and in that, the state owned the means of production. So they owned all of the, the major you know sources of, of business, of manufacturing, of natural resources. Uh, as Gorbachev was you know, transitioning the Soviet Union into um, reforming it into like more private businesses, the Soviet Union needed to transition the ownership of those businesses, those you know sectors, um, from the government to private individuals. This is, in at least in modern history, maybe in history, a the a unique time where people could get very rich in very suspect ways. Uh, So, for example, I guess I'll just talk a little bit about Roman Abramovich. And this is all still a little bit shrouded in in secrecy and mystery of of how it all exactly went down. But Abramovich was just a businessman uh, at like, he was young. He was like 30, in his early 30s, um, when, when this all happened. He was close friends with Boris Yeltsin, who became the the Russian like prime minister after um, Gorbachev. And when this big one of the main oil companies that uh, the Soviet Union had previously been you know owned as a state was transitioned to private ownership, um, Abramovich was one of the two people that bought that. Um, they bought it for 200 million US dollars, 100 million each, he and his partner. Um, it was valued at 2.7 billion US dollars. And so essentially, Abramovich, I believe he's admitted this, like used his connections through his friendship with Yeltsin, and he bribed a ton of officials to be able to bid on this, um, this company, Sidneft, which is an oil company. Um, that oil company immediately skyrocketed and made both he and his partner billions of dollars. Um, over time, Abramovich became very close, like was had an apartment inside the Kremlin. Um, he recommended Vladimir Putin to Boris Yeldon um, and was instrumental in setting up Putin's first cabinet. He was the governor of a Russian province for seven years um, and is now worth somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 to $14 billion. Not necessarily the greatest guy in the world. Um, and certainly the way he made his money was, was very sketchy. Since that time, he's done, you know, a lot of good in the world, quite honestly. He's, uh, you know, his grandmother is Jewish. And so he, I saw one stat where it said that, you know, Abramovich has given away more money than any living Russian. Um, and that certainly seems to be true to me. And I, I mentioned that his grandmother is Jewish. He's been uh, very involved in a lot of, um, like combating anti-Semitism. Um, he was also, you know, in recognition of some of his efforts, he was given Israeli citizenship back in 2018. Um, he partnered up with Robert Kraft, uh, the owner of the Patriots, who is also Jewish at one point to, to host a series of events like Chelsea came over and played at, in Foxborough to raise money for like, um, like, a, like a Holocaust remembrance. And so he's been very involved in those causes, he's been involved, uh, he grew up as an orphan, so he's been very involved in, in helping uh, kids and um, orphans in, in Russia. And, and more recently, he has been fairly intimately involved in trying to broker peace talks between the Ukraine and Russia. And we'll get, I think, a little bit more into that in a minute. 
But this is all to say that, you know, two, maybe three weeks ago now, Rona Bromovich put Chelsea up for sale. And he put Chelsea up for sale ostensibly because it was untenable for him to continue to own a, a soccer team in London, given the anti-Russian backlash that was happening in the UK and across the world. Shortly after that, he was sanctioned. He's one of seven Russian oligarchs sanctioned by both the, EK, the UK and the EU. And they've basically frozen all of his assets that are in the EU and the UK, including Chelsea. So to the point where Chelsea can't sell tickets for the rest of the season, they can't you know, sell jerseys, they, they can't, the, 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 there are caps on how much they can pay for travel. And so I, this was this was an interesting situation for me that this is why I want to talk to you about it is, you know, on the one hand, I have very much been like sanction, sanction, sanction. Let's 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 lay down the hammer on Russia, all of these oligarchs that have enabled Vladimir Putin. Let, let's make them suffer as much as possible. And then, you know, they go and the UK goes and sanctions my guy. And I'm like, as a Chelsea fan, I am like kind of upset about it and obviously like super biased, but I'm like, you know, yeah, sure. Abramovich, like he didn't get his money in the best ways, but is he really that bad of a guy? I don't think so. We're like, why, why, why are we making, why are we making him suffer? Why are we making all these Chelsea fans suffer that now they can't go to games and we might have disadvantages late in the league season. And so I, in recognizing my own conflicts of interest here, I wanted to get your take. Let's start specifically with the Abramovich take, but then I wanted to kind of expand it more into who as um, leagues as fans that we're kind of getting into bed with and who do we, how do we kind of, um, you know, justify rooting for teams that are owned by some pretty sketchy people? Um, well, where to begin? I mean, I think I'd probably first say that, as you know, me, I have no love lost for look, these billionaire I don't like the term oligarch. I'll uh, maybe talk about that in a minute, but like, I don't ever, I'm never going to feel bad for these billionaires. I think these types of things are, um, they're, they're just ripe for happening. Like regardless of the sort of the situation, I think he talked about how he got his money in the first place and he's, he's not sort of the only one, that's that's like that right and i think that's that's where we're going um that that being said yeah i mean i don't know who the like the the culprit is here right is it is it is it him or is it privatization right those contracts had to go to somebody somewhere so if it wasn't him it could have been someone else um i and and like the the notion about his philanthropy and I, and I don't want to take away from anything that he has done in terms of like giving away his money, but that's always sort of been the cover of the ultra rich. Like, look, he's given hundreds of millions of dollars. It's like, well, if he has a couple billion, then like a hundred million is probably like within his reach to do. And just because he's given more than anybody else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you would almost, that also goes without to say that he has more than anybody else, right. In order to do that. So that there is, um, there is sort of that aspect where like, I don't necessarily feel bad for Roman Abramovich, the man, the idea of like, 
is this, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, can I, let me, let me, yeah, let me pop in here. So I don't know this, what you were just saying kind of reminds me of the movie. And even as I was talking, it reminded me of myself, this movie of the, the inside man. It's the bank robber movie with Clive Owen and Denzel Washington, right? And the, the guy they're robbing the bank from was essentially made his money during the Holocaust, like selling out Jews. And then he moved to the United States and became like the biggest um, like philanthropist in, in New York. And, every, and everyone loved this guy because of everything he had done for the last you know 50 years of his life was really great. But does that forgive like the original sin? And kind of the point of the movie was kind of like, no, it doesn't. Right? Like, the only reason you're able to be so philanthropic is because of these terrible things you did. Not that Abramovich did like really, really terrible things, but you're right. I think when you have $14 billion and you've given away three, that's great. It's better than not giving that away, that money away. But like, <laughs> we just do like percentages here. <laughs> like, uh, let me give it away a couple thousand dollars, you know, like, uh, um, and no one's patting me on the back for that. Um, so I, I think that's, I think that's fair to say. So I, I think, you know, aside from uh, the Abramovich case, I would like your opinion in particular on that because, so it just came out actually yesterday that Abramovich was the victim of poisoning, that it appears that Russian agents, you know, when he and several others went to meet with um, Ukrainian representatives to try to broker a peace deal, Russian forces, it is suspected, who do not want to broker such a peace deal, um, try to poison these, these guys in a similar, I'll probably, probably not a serious way, is um, Alexei Navalny, who is the Russian opposition leader who's been jailed and now his jail sentence was just increased shockingly um was was poisoned um, in recent years and so this is where it's kind of tricky because i'm just like so mixed up with like my personal feelings of like let's let's sanction these russians and make them pay but like is this the russian he's he's out there trying to like he's out there getting poisoned for trying to negotiate peace deals here but he no doubt he did enable vladimir putin's rise but he has lived in like the UK and Israel for years. I, it's just like, it, I, I, it's, it's hard because I think one of the things that I'm trying to reckon with, and maybe this is just with sanctions and this is honest, probably with anything in general, right? Like from a philosophical big picture, like theoretical standpoint, I'm all in favor of these things. And then you start to hear, like, you start to look at them a little more closely and individually. And it's like, like, I'm not like, I don't know. I feel a little more like ambivalent about it. So, so I'm glad that you said that because first of all, you brought me back because I was I was getting lost in my own in my own head. And and here's I think the main issue is that like these kinds of sanctions, when you know all you get in Western media is what Russia is doing specifically to Ukraine, is all like it all kind of intuitively makes sense. We have established who are the good guys and who are the bad guys here, and the bad guys are the Russians, right? Yeah. And I think our reality is always far more complicated than the story that helps us just like make sense of it. And we always want to feel like we're in this cosmic battle of good versus evil and we're on the side of good. And that just means that everybody else is de facto on the side of evil. I'm not, and I'm not trying to say that Abramovich or Russia or whatever is, is not bad, but I think the problem is that like, it's, it's just not that simple. It's really, yeah just not that simple. And like the idea of like sanctions, right? Like why do we use sanctions as a tool? Well, obviously a, we feel like it's not going to escalate the military tension because we're not actually, you know, 
shooting missiles or uh, dropping bombs or anything, right? So there's there's that. It's an, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, like a nonviolent attack um, against an, another country, right? But in this case, we're going after individuals, and so not like the Russian government as a whole. We're going after specific people who we think have influence over Vladimir Putin um, or influence over the Russian government. This is part of the reason that I don't love the term oligarchy because an oligarchy technically is like a collection of people who kind of have, I mean, it, it was developed sort of, you know, over like a feudal system where each person has their own kind of fiefdom and then together they rule this entire place, but really each person controls their own domain. Like that is an oligarch is it's yeah a collection of individuals making the decisions but at the same time everybody is saying that putin's the only one making the decisions so if putin's the only one making the decisions then this isn't an oligarchy right it's like that doesn't it doesn't work like that but oligarch makes people sound bad like yeah you've never heard oligarch used in a in a way that's like oh you know the nice oligarch like no yeah. it, it sounds like a bad thing so that that's always been interesting to me and then <clears throat> If we want to use these sanctions, well, A, if we think that these oligarchs have influence over Putin, okay, maybe that makes sense. But like you were saying, it's, it's not entirely clear, like, did one of them just get poisoned by Putin or other sort of agents also acting on behalf of Russia, right? So now, well, okay, if they don't have influence over Putin, but they just happen to be Russian and we don't well, well, now what are we doing? Like, are we are we saying that that's kind of an okay thing to do when when war breaks out? We just kind of like pick and choose who we make winners and losers out of it. Because at the end of the day, his assets still exist, so we can freeze them, we can force him to sell Chelsea, but somebody else is going to step in there. And is that necessarily like the right thing to do? I don't, I don't know. I don't if if it's not helping us with the situation between Russia and Ukraine. And it's just a punitive measure because we feel like what's happening is wrong and somebody has to pay for it. Here's how we're going to do that. Then. Okay. But it, it now, now we're sort of like mixing the purpose of the action. And, and again, like, I don't, you know, if, if he's not a billionaire at the end of this, I'm not, I'm not going to lose any sleep over it, but I do think it's important to like try and figure out like, what are we doing and why is if, if we're trying to take a moral high ground again, like, like we kind of talked about in the last podcast, I don't really think that that's available to us. And we should be worried about other, like, uh, like imagine a reverse situation and which after Iraq, Bob Kraft wants to sell Patriots tickets in London and the UK is like, you can't do that. Like, we don't like what you're doing. We don't like what the US government is doing over here. So you private citizen are no longer allowed to do what you want to do in our country. Like that seems like a messy situation. Well, it, 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 even better example would be like John Henry who owns both the Red Sox and your, your boys Liverpool, right? Like this would be the exact same situation if the United States getting involved in somewhere where the UK doesn't believe they should be. And all of a sudden Liverpool's out of luck, right? You have to sell Liverpool. And it's like, right. I do think it's important to put the shoe on the other foot in which 
I maybe had a more difficult time doing until like my team was affected, which is like a super selfish thing, but it's also maybe a little bit of a reality of like just easier when just to like paint everyone with a broad brush. Yeah. I mean, you're not, uh, until it affects you personally, you may not even look out for like, you know, what could be the, what, what would be the counter argument to like what's going on? Like, and like you said, well, you know, he's, he doesn't even live in Russia really anymore. He be beyond like, his dealings in Chelsea football club. Yeah. I mean, he still is making money in Russia that like, there's no, no doubt about that, but yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. So, I mean, one of the other teams that you wanted to. No, hold up. Before we get there, I just want to like pick up on like your oligarch point, because I think the term was maybe more relevant in the nineties where it did kind of seem like all of these people were in, as I mentioned with the Bronvich then went and like governed a province and like, it, it did very much seem like they were in charge of like, both the political and economic aspects of, of Russia. But as soon as Putin came along, he put an end to that. He was, he, he, he caught, over the last two decades, he has consolidated power into himself. And you can see that anytime he sits at a table with all of his cabinet members. Um, uh, if you haven't seen pictures of it, you should go look it up. It's kind of hilarious. Uh, it's very like Bond villainish, um, which he kind of is very Bond villainish in general, um, except a real life one. And, so all right, let's leave it at that. Uh, but but the term oligarch, like, it's not applicable anymore. But like you say, we color, you know, these Russians with the term because it does make them also seem like kind of these evil guys. Whereas, you know, we, we certainly don't look at, you know, our major league owners, whether we look at any sport who also have billions of dollars. And we just kind of accept that here in the United States because we're like cool with how they made their money. But like, in lots of people, lots of American sports owners did make their money in a very American way. You know, you, you found uh, Microsoft and you buy the Seahawks, you found Home Depot and you get to buy the Falcons, right? Like, sure. You look at some of these other people and it's like, where'd you make your money from? Like, you know, trading on like the margins, like, you know, getting like striking oil and all of a sudden, like you, you've now become you know, a billionaire and I got so I, I just think it, it is an interesting point that we just kind of accept here in the United States that like oh people have billions of dollars and buy sports teams and that's fine but then you know a Russian guy with billions of dollars he's a Russian oligarch and like he's kind of this evil like shadowy figure. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, I guess along those lines, it, it's not to say that he probably that he hasn't had political influence. Like he definitely has. But he's not the only. He's not the only For one. Sure not. Yeah. You look at. I mean, there there are tons of examples of this, including the Crafts and the, the Henrys are. I'm sure some of the biggest political donors. But like the Koch brothers, obviously, are kind of a name that that comes to mind in terms of just like how our political system isn't insulated from people with tons of money having undue influence on how elections at like any level or any any form of government are playing out so right like again it's one of those things where yeah uh somebody like what's happening in russia is is not the idea is not as far from the ideal situation but we like it is kind of a de facto reality of how all of our governments work money politics and sports works like so exactly so like woody johnson just taught my head like was the owner of the new york jets he was also the u.s ambassador to the uk under the trump administration 
why do we think that happened? You know, like we, Kraft was famously very close with President Trump. You know, it's like, and those are just like, I'm, I'm sure we have Democratic examples as well, but it's, uh, you, you made me like very sympathetic to Russian people in these last couple episodes. No, I, I mean, and, and that's, I, I think the sad part is that like, the, the, like the conclusion that I keep coming to is, is that like we, that anybody in the story is looking for the heroes and the villains. And it's like, to a degree, there are not very many heroes. And the idea that like everyone is a villain is, is also complicated because I mean, you know, like I studied economics in in college and the number one principle is that everybody like operates in their self-interest and we just have people who have different degrees of like, what how their self-interest impacts the rest of the world and and the problem to me is and i mean you know that this is how i think it's it's the fact that they have this amount of money in the first place and can tip the scales like this that like that and and obviously dealing with that problem creates other problems i'm I'm not saying that there's like an easy wealth tax type solution to that but unquestionably this is, you know, these are the repercussions of the system that we have. Sure. Yeah. And I think your point is that like, that system exists globally. And for us to try to like view Russians differently than how we view like Americans is um, maybe hip- hypocritical in some ways, or at least we should be more closely examining how we're considering all of these people, which I think is fair. Touche. All right. um, I did want to talk a little bit when we talked about this, uh, sort of situation you or not situation but we talked about this topic of money sports and politics one of the other teams that um we wanted to talk about was newcastle but also sort of the phil mickelson case so i'd love yeah, sure to- i actually want to bring up like three particular um soccer teams football teams so uh the first is uh, manchester city so manchester city was another english premier league team has become probably the best team in Europe in the last decade. Um, and the reason they became the best team in Europe is because they were bought by Sheikh Mansur, who represents Abu Dhabi. Um, their, their sponsorship is the Emirates Airlines, and um, Sheikh Mansur has pumped hundreds of millions of dollars into Man City over, over the past decade. They're Etihad. I think Arsenal's Etihad. Oh, yeah, 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 the Etihad. Yeah, yeah, touche. Um Another team, but go on. Yeah, we can get into them too. Uh, but whatever. So Man-, Man City is another one of those teams. But like, so they're essentially owned by this sports group that's owned by Abu Dhabi, which is one of the United Arab, United Arab Emirates. Um, next team, Paris Saint-Germain, PSG, um, based out of France. They are owned by the Qatari government. So essentially, like Qatar bought them six years ago. And finally, as you just mentioned, Newcastle was just bought um, in, in this last year by the Saudi Public Investment Fund, essentially Saudi Arabia, which is chaired by Mohammed bin Salman. Um, people probably know who he is. He's the crown prince. People think he's really running the show over there and infamously was behind the murder of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi um, um, three or four years ago. And so this is kind of where my Abramovich take then balloon into a, l- a little bit more of like, you know, one of our good friends, Brendan Ward, is a Newcastle fan. And Newcastle has been kind of like a long-suffering club, like kind of hanging around the bottom of the Premier League. And Saudi Arabia bought them. And 
very excited, you know, and like understandably so. And I have friends who are PSG fans and Man City fans. And like when these huge groups buy these teams and you know they're going to pump hundreds of millions of billions of dollars into the teams and all of a sudden your teams are going to be world-class like Chelsea, like Man City, like PSGR, you get excited as a fan. And like, I don't, I have no problem with that, but like you, it is morally challenging because like you do understand like Qatar, the Qatari government is like not a great government. The Saudi Arabian government is like not a great government. And these, these governments really, I think cleverly use these sports um, parts of their government, these like sporting ventures to help cultivate a better image in the world. And all of a sudden you have, you know, Sheikh Mansour out there or whomever it might be. And he's waving to people and everyone's applauding him and, and no one cares what's happening in Abu Dhabi and no one cares what's happening in Qatar. And, you know, who knows if we don't have Mohammed bin Salman like out there in, in London in a few years and everyone's applauding him because he's taken Newcastle to the top of English football. And like people are able, they're just forgetting like the human rights abuses that are going on in Saudi Arabia. So yeah, that's it just, it was more mushroomed into like, as fans, how do we reconcile our desire to be successful and our teams to be successful with like, this is, these are like not great people and they're doing this for not great reasons. So on that note, I'd love for you to tell the film Mickelson story in the- Sure. sure. Great. So just along those same lines, talking about Saudi Arabia and Mohammed bin Salman, uh, again, the, the Saudi public investment like sports fund uh, floated this idea of creating a rival tour to the PGA tour. And they were going to throw- millions and millions of dollars at these top golfers and it was like it was a real thing it was clear that like a number of top golfers were considering doing this for a few months because just the money was going to be ridiculous and then phil mickelson infamously um gave this interview and he says and i'll just i'll just quote the whole thing because it's like quite stunning it was quote we know they killed jamal khashoggi and have a horrible record on human rights they execute people over there for being gay knowing all of this why would i even consider it because this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. And this is Phil, like, this is Phil, you just can't say that, you know, it's like, you're saying what everyone's thinking, but you can't, you just can't come out and I don't know, I forgot the term for that, but you can't like, uh, you can't say, say the actual things. And this is where immediately all Phil's sponsors dropped him. He was shunned. Like he's taken now a leave of absence from the tour and all of the, uh, all of the rest of the golfers who were definitely considering this immediately backed off like, no, no way. I I want no part of that. Even though like they totally were until Phil got this huge backlash. But again, Phil said what everyone was thinking was that, look, these are terrible people. We know they do terrible things, but they're going to give us so much money. Do you, do you know who else says that? The U.S. government. When we sell, I think, a most recent contract for arms that we're selling Saudi Arabia, around $650 million. And that's not the Trump administration. That's Joe Biden. So this is the absurd hypocrisy of, like, all of this. Like, everybody coming out and being like, Phil, I can't believe you're t-. Like, we're literally selling them the tools of the destruction that they're kind of doing in, in that region, like all the bombs that they drop on Yemen right now are our bombs. So it's, it's one of those things that's just like, and, and a lot of people were like, you know, Phil, you have no idea what's going on in the Middle East. Like, why are we, why are you saying this kind of stuff? And it's like, and it's, 
And, and the thing is, he's a, a single individual who probably stood to gain like maybe tens of millions of dollars while our, our actual government who theoretically represents like our nation and our values is going ahead, moving forward with these massive arms deals to Saudi Arabia while we're like shutting individuals who are like, Hey, you know, you know, I know Saudi Arabia is doing some bad things, but they're going to pay me money. Like it's literally that like, I, uh, unless I'm, you know, somehow getting my own perverted set of news. Like I fail to see how there's any difference. If anything, what we're doing as a government is 10 X worse than what Phil Mickelson was like suggesting that he would do for, for some money as an individual. And, and at the same time, like I, yeah, I don't, I don't, it's, it's tough. Right. So Saudi Arabia's huge oil money. That's, that's where they, you know, they have all this Aramco, which <clears throat> recently, like did some kind of a sale, um, like an, an IPO type, an IPO light kind of thing, um, which, sorry, Aramco is Saudi Arabia's like giant, like state run oil company, but they're, they're sort of seeing the writing on the wall with climate change and realizing like, Hey, if we don't start to diversify a, by like buying, you know, it, trying to bring in other sources of revenue, like cultural things, like sports like golf, but in addition, sports like soccer and, you know, Saudi Arabia is that one of those few countries in Asia or the Middle East that makes the World Cup every year. So they have kind of like a, or every, whatever, every four years. So they have kind of that uh, foothold in there and they're looking for different ways to be a part of the global sort of scene. Now, now of course, <laughs> they have a, a very bad track record of human rights abuses, but we don't have to go that far back into our own history to see where we've done that sort of thing as well. So the question is really like, how do we, one, does it really serve us to just, these countries are evil. They're going to be evil forever. Let's treat them as such and make them the pariahs that, you know, that we call them, or how can we, if we believe in, in our values and in our morals, like how can we nudge them in our direction? And I'm not saying that that means that, oh, we have to let them, you know, buy their way into whatever they want to do. But I think there has to be an acknowledgement that like necessarily just saying like these people are, are evil and they will be for forever kind of is not helpful to our cause, if we believe what's going on in their countries is wrong, we don't necessarily want to isolate them, right? Like we want to shed more light on them so that, so that things happen and things change. And that's, I think that's the, I think that is, I mean, there's definitely a tension there. Like, how do you, how do you, how do you incentivize change if that's what you want to see? But how do you not also profit off of it? And it's, yeah, it's one of those things where we are, we are kind of entering into a world where consumers are able to push a little bit more in on, on these things and kind of decide with their dollars, like how to get these things to work out better without, um, without necessarily like governmental intervention, right? Like we see that in sort of like workshop conditions in, in East Asia, certainly not the best, but they've, 
definitely come a long way from 20, 30 years ago when nobody knew what was going on in there, right? And a lot of that are transparency efforts and global standards. But I think at the end of the day, it's got to be like a more global approach to these things. It cannot, it can't, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I think, I think that's where like I, I, I fall on it. And, and the idea of trying to like label entire countries as bad or evil, I think is a tough one because like I, like, like we say often, like we're not perfect. And so we, we don't want to be labeled by the worst things that happen in this country. And, and they may be far more pervasive in Saudi Arabia than they are here, but I don't, until we get to a point where they're not happening here, we can't say, you know, I don't think we're really in a position to say things, things about these other places. So not to, not to not highlight them, but to say that because these things are happening in your country, we're going to cut you off, I think is problematic because I don't think it necessarily helps us get to where we want to be, which is where a world in which these things are happening far less. Yeah, it's not an easy take as many of these things aren't, but I think you you got at it really nicely there where it's just, it's complicated and you need to be able to hold like multiple thoughts in your head at once and being like, hey, I can be happy that Saudi Arabia is buying Newcastle because I think that's like good for us. And actually, I think that's probably good that maybe they are get more of the like, quote unquote, Western values, right? They're into sports and we get to export all of these things that we do because ostensibly you know epl games are now going to be broadcast more in saudi arabia you get kind of more into whether it's capitalism democracy uh, equality whatever like those those things are like that's a good thing but also let's not forget that just because you know they, they own my favorite football team that they're still not doing these really terrible things out there and like to your point with the united states government it's the same thing right i've said this repeatedly is that i don't believe in like cutting off or isolating any of these countries. We should always be trying to engage with them, but that doesn't mean that we need to be selling them $600 billion worth of, or 600 million, whatever it is, million, billion? In the most, we've made a couple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. $600 million worth of weapons that they're now gonna use to bomb Yemeni citizens. So, you know, it's like, it's just, yeah, I think your the theme of this I don't know, maybe this wasn't the title I was thinking of, but maybe we'll just go like heroes and villains. Um, but like, that's kind of the thing, right? Is that it's just not that easy. And like, some of these people are definitely more, when we're talking about the Vladimir Putins and the uh, Mohammed bin Salmans of the world, like, I don't think it's a stretch to say that these are really, really bad people. Um, but yeah, things are just, situations are complicated. And that's not to excuse the behavior of, of either of those men. That's just to say that like, when you're dealing with, Saudi Arabia as a country or Russia as a country or Russian citizens or Saudi Arabian citizens, like to paint them all with a a broad brush or even to paint the situations with a a broad brush, um, I think isn't right either. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think two, two things to reiterate on what you just said, a, the, the citizens that live there in general are, should be viewed very differently from like who the people in power are and exactly what they're doing. I, I think, and you know, what, what you're saying about Putin, uh, about Mohammed bin, bin Salman being bad people is true, but I think it's also important to note that they don't look at themselves that way. They don't sit there, 
you know, like Dr. Evil style, like scratching the bald cat, like thinking about how we're going to either take over the world or destroy the world, right? Their worldview, and this doesn't mean like individual actions can still be bad and still be evil without individuals necessarily being evil. And, and this is not even really to make a judgment on either of those people, but just to say that like when we frame these discussions, like I hear it a lot of like, this is good versus evil. I, th- I think we have to understand like, you know, we talk about Russian propaganda a lot and domestically we have a much freer press, there's no doubt, but we also have a slanted view of how we're ingesting the news about this world. And a lot of people in other places are probably, you know, could be reading about these issues in a very different light. And that's important for us to understand that, like, even though it's self-evident to us, you know, who's in the right and who's in the wrong, that that doesn't necessarily mean that that that's how it is uh, being perceived globally. And we've sort of been, it's like, it's been a blessing and a curse that, like, because of our stature, because of our, the size of our economy and how much other countries want a piece of our growth that like, we've sort of been led to believe that everybody believes kind of what we believe in our, the American dream is the dream that everybody wants to have. And I always remember sort of what Colin was saying in, uh, when talking about Afghanistan is like, you know, there was a little bit of a shock. Like we got there with our freedom and our democracy and people were like, dude, this is not like, this is not how things work here. Like it's different. Like our reality is different. And that's the, yeah, a very hard thing to, to wrap your head around because I feel like we've always been taught that there's like a objective good and evil in every situation. And perhaps there is, but it's a lot harder to see than I think than we like to admit. Yeah, it's like I, I feel like even like the comic book uh like i'm just thinking batman in particular right like i i think that you when i was a kid it was like oh batman was he was the hero right and then like whether it's just a more recent take or like if you actually kind of watch some of the movies or read some of like the the, the comic books you're like oh like he is more good but like he's not not all good here <laughs> you know like, yeah right and so even like it's just like more complicated than than we see, and I, I don't mean to trivialize like this by comparing it to comic book heroes and villains, but I, I do think your your overall point here is is true. It's like I think it's easier for people to see issues, and, and that's still not easy, but to see issues with shades of gray. But it's harder to see people, particularly people on the world stage that you don't know, with like shades of gray. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right. Uh, when we come back, let's let's touch on uh, Kaji Brown Jackson's uh, confirmation hearings. So when we last talked about the Supreme Court nomination and confirmation process, Justice Breyer had just announced his impending retirement and President Biden had come out and said that he was going to nominate a black woman fulfilling a campaign promise. Uh, And we we debated and discussed that about, you know, the optics of doing that and whether or not he, he should do that. But we actually haven't talked about the nominee yet. And so it feels like this is the best time to do that. So 
Biden, quite obviously, um, ended up nominating Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who was always rumored to be at least a top three, if not a, a top favorite. Um, people probably know her her resume by now, but just generally, she went to Harvard undergrad and Harvard Law, served as the editor of the Harvard Law Review. Uh, she then clerked for three different judges after school, including Justice Breyer, which is a nice kind of like full circle moment here. She then served in private practice at a couple big law firms for a few years before working on the United States Sentencing Commission for a couple of years, and then quite famously now working as a public defender for a couple of years before going back into private practice. Um, she was nominated to be a judge for the District of Columbia in 2013. Uh, she was elevated to the Circuit Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit um, in 2021, just last year. Um, and all of that means that she has already passed two Senate votes confirming her to those positions. Um, President Biden nominated her, and then just this past week, she went through her confirmation hearings, which had this become a total circus. Uh, I do you have initial thoughts uh, on on her or on the- sure sure Let, let's start with her before we get into the, the hearings. Yeah, I mean, this is an immensely qualified woman for the position. I think part of you know, the, uh, you know, what we talked about during the um, appointment process was that, you know, is it, is it right to um, announce that you're going to pick a woman or a black woman um, that far ahead? Are you limiting the pool? Shouldn't we be looking for the best candidate? Um, And I think one of the things that as as I started hearing about her qualifications and some of the other names that were floated is that like, there are only, you know, a handful of Supreme court justices and we have a large number of very qualified, very different types of people that we could use to fill that role. And so I think, I mean, there's nothing about her prior experience or, um, her, certainly not her education that would raise any flags like, hey, this person is not actually qualified to do what she's hopefully going to do. Um, I think just today they've announced that they're delaying the vote um, until Monday because I don't know, forget exactly what it's like a last ditch Republican effort to, to try and derail this thing. But Joe Manchin has now come around to uh, to voting on her, and he's, as we know, the, the kingmaker around here. So, yes, yeah, um, she's like immensely qualified. She checks like an incredible number of boxes, like from her just from resume, like you said, uh, like top tier education. But then she she clerked, and then she worked in private practice and worked in in public practice, and as a public defender, like that, I that's something that like I'm kind of passionate about, and it's really cool to see someone with that background get get to that that height. And I think, unfortunately, this exists throughout all levels of our justice system, is that prosecutors are far more likely to be elevated to positions of judgeships, and then like, then increasingly like federal judgeships and uh, court of appeals and the Supreme Court. And so I think just the diversity of experience, I think is something that 
maybe has been highlighted a little bit more by Democrats in the last week or so, but wasn't necessarily like brought up as much at first. And I think that's as much important and probably will inform her worldview as much. I don't want to certainly don't want to speak for her, but as much, not more of like her worldview as a female or as a black woman, you know, I, they, I think having worked in, in different parts of the criminal justice system, including on the sentencing commission and, and as a public defender, I think that's going to have a huge impact on how she views the law in a really good way. And just to get back to quickly, prosecutors get elevated because they work for like the district attorney's office. They're working for the government. And so they have connections within the government. And so like, it's very natural for governors or whomever is appointing these people to just pick people they know. It's much more difficult to pick people that are doing defense work. And just like the job of the Senate to be clear, is to advise and consent to these nominees. Somewhere along the line, that has clearly been lost because the questions that she was getting, and quite honestly, that Amy Coney Barrett got a couple of years ago, are clearly not designed to see if this person is qualified, whether intellectually, morally, ethically, to like sit on on the Supreme Court. and that's just incredibly disappointing for me. I know it, like, there have certainly been bitter, you know, confirmation battles in the past, whether under FDR or, or Nixon or Reagan, but you go back and look at some of, like, the votes that people were confirmed by, and it was, yeah, I want to go to pull those up, but it's like, uh, you know, she's going to pass with, like, maybe 50, 51 votes. Like, Harris might have to come in if, if, we can't get any Republican votes. And like, you always hope that Collins and Murkowski and Romney like come around, but li- like Lindsey Graham, dude, Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz literally have, they have like no principles at all. They, they really don't. And like Graham's just like bitter. Of, he, he voted for her to be confirmed to the, the circuit court of appeals last year. He said she was qualified to sit on the, 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 the DC circuit court of appeals, but like, She's all of a sudden, she can't be elevated. She has all of these issues with her in the last year. Get out of here, right? Like, he's just bitter that his chosen person didn't get picked. And then, of course, you have all of, like, the grandstanding from, you know, the Hollies and the Cruises of the world who just want to, like, go farther and farther right these days, apparently, um, and make, like, use their TV time to make, you know, start to, like, pitch the 2024 or 2028 run. It's, um, yeah, I was disappointed but not surprised by the questioning. I was also disappointed largely by the Amy Coney Barrett questioning, but perhaps even more so by, by these people. I think, you know, when we had Mo on, she said it right when she was just like, look, I might disagree with Ketanji Brown Jackson about a lot of things. And I personally, like I might disagree with how she reads the constitution, but there is no doubt that she is qualified to sit on this court and she should, she should sail through this nomination process with an overwhelming number of votes. And it's like really disappointing that that's not what's going to happen. Yeah. And I mean, it, it unfortunately is just further undermining sort of the, the idea of the court, right. Which is yep. of the balance on these other branches of government that are elected officials. And maybe it's never, it's always been an ideal that was never really, like you could never really fairly see it in practice, but yeah, these confirmation hearings are, they're a joke. They're a joke. Yeah. So I I just want, Oh, sorry. I was going to say, I did enjoy, I mean, also just like completely unnecessary for what is, should be more or less like a, a rubber stamping 
uh, event. But on the positive side, I did enjoy listening to some of what Cory Booker had to say when he was just like, look, all these people can go off like this cool. And I'm going to, I'm going to enjoy it for a minute. And, uh, and I think, and I think it is like, hope, hopefully we, we see her confirmation and it is definitely momentous. Um, and yeah, it's, it, it's cool to see when we see people from different backgrounds being elevated to sort of the highest, positions that are you know possible for their professions it really does um like representation matters we always we always say that yeah i just like to like provide some statistical data to what i was just saying like i knew but like sandra day o'connor obviously first woman nominated to the supreme court 99-0 her confirmation and as it should have been scalia clearly very conservative 98-0 kennedy 97-0 Souter, 90 to 9. Ginsburg, 96 to 3. Breyer, who she's replacing, 87 to 9. Roberts, 78 22. Right? Like, it wasn't even an issue. And then all of a sudden, you know, Gorsuch, 54 45. Kavanaugh, 50 48. Coney Barrett, 52 48. And that's pretty much going to be somewhere around where Kataji Brown Jackson falls. And like you say, all of these attacks lobbed at her make her seem, you know, quote unquote, like soft on crime or like it's just Republican talking points, right? And now they can point like all of this, like, these liberal groups that supported her just as like Democrats did with like Amy Tony Barrett, like look at all these Christian organizations that are just pushing these conservative justice up there. And it's like, it's like, that's not helping anybody. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, it's so self-serving that like these individuals think that they're going to like help themselves at the expense of like the, the nomination confirmation process and the legitimacy of, of the Supreme court. It's I, like, that's what I'm saying. Like, I know it wasn't perfect in the, but this isn't rose-colored glasses. Like, the numbers don't lie. We had the first woman confirmed 99 nothing. The first Black woman should be confirmed with overwhelming votes. Yeah, I mean, especially when she is as qualified as she is. Like, it's not... Yeah, anyways. That is uh, another a situation to lament, unfortunately. Yeah, but it's... Uh, despite despite all of the, the frustration about the process, it does look like um, she will get confirmed and and that is it is just like ultimately really exciting and while like I think people that are like really in, involved like us or maybe you're on like the fringes of the political spectrum will remember this stuff the vast majority of the American public will just see a black woman sitting on the court a public defender sitting on the court and that's going to be really cool for a lot of people yeah and she's going to be good she's going to be good at her job <laughs> like, uh, yeah <laughs> only the second uh person who's sitting on the court um with actual trial experience which is interesting again diversity of experience probably a good thing probably good thing. Right. well with that we'll leave it till next time hopefully i'll see you soon We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away Some morning left your ego bruised, but 
what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds, because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American idea friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. Learn the hard way, but to those who would die upon that hill, quiet truth is better than rain. Somewhere along the line, we seem to have forgotten the values sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, some morning let your ego bruise. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. And folks of different minds, because though we didn't share. Opinions we share out American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning bus I need an early morning bus There's hope behind the bluster Cause the old Main Street may not sell It's full of folks just like you and me When we have trouble seeing The human for the politics Trying to find a better way to disagree Some days you win Some days you'll leave your ego through But what I wouldn't give for Hope I used to find And chase the lion's head and Folks with different minds Because though we did not share Opinions we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments an early morning buzz oh, What I wouldn't give for The hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks are different minds Because though we did not Share opinions We share that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz